Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. That takes me west. I'm heading to St. David's in Wales, following in the footsteps of countless pilgrims and the huge armies of Edward I. I'll uncover the secrets of a medieval arms race and find out what the Welsh castles can tell us about the origins of the map itself. The golf map, drawn around 1360, shows more than 600 settlements, almost 200 rivers, and about 3,000 miles of routes shown in red. It is breathtaking in its detail. But to modernize, it looks rather strange. The golf map has Britain on its side. It's entirely natural that the makers of the golf map would have orientated it not north-south like we're used to seeing with maps, but facing east towards Jerusalem, much like this in every other Christian church, because Jerusalem was the most sacred Christian city and indeed the capital of the Christian world. Its very layout shows us that medieval Britons perceived the world through their religion. The faithful would show their devotion by going on pilgrimages, and St. David's in Wales was one of the most sacred destinations in Britain. The route to St. David's starts in Gloucester. It was the gateway to Wales, and is the starting point for my journey. In 1360, this beautiful cathedral was just an abbey. But unlike so many others, it's clearly marked on the map. This is one of the finest examples of Gothic architecture, and its crowning glory is this stained glass window, which is one of the biggest in Europe. But most of this would never have been built were it not for a supposed murder and not just any murder, but one of the most sordid in English history. The only thing is, some historians are starting to ask whether there was a murder at all, or was it a hoax of royal proportions? At the centre of this intrigue lies Edward II. Unlike his father, Edward I, he was one of the most ineffective and unpopular monarchs in English history. So unpopular that he was overthrown in 1327 by his own wife and her lover, and then imprisoned in nearby Berkeley Castle. 
what happened next remains a mystery. For centuries, the accepted version is that the deposed king died a horrific death, sodomized with a red-hot poker. Rumors began to spread that he hadn't been killed at all and had actually escaped to Ireland. But there was a body at Barclay Castle. However, it was wrapped in embalming cloths so no one could see its face. Yet, this body was soon widely accepted to be the cadaver of the ex-king, Edward II. But the question arose, what to do with it? It was then that the abbots here at Gloucester realized that this was a chance to put their abbey on the map. They agreed to bury the body here and to build a beautiful tomb. It was an inspired move. A king's tomb meant pilgrims, and pilgrims meant money and prestige for the abbey. The body was brought here for the funeral. It was a lavish affair. Thousands of people came to pay their respects, and the coffin remained in place for two months. Records tell of enormous oaken barriers that were erected in order to keep the crowds at bay. To this day, the tomb has lost none of its impact. This probably shouldn't be taken as a portrait of Edward in the modern sense of the term. It's more like an idealized image of the way that he would look as he entered into paradise. Back in the 14th century, details on the effigy would have been picked out in color, and you can still see some traces of gold leaf on his hair and beard. And gemstones, either real or paste, would have been fixed into the holes on his crown here. Despite the controversy surrounding the death, pilgrims flocked to see the tomb. The proceeds transformed the entire east end of the building. The abbot's plan had paid off. If Edward wasn't murdered, then who is in that tomb? We'll probably never know. But according to one controversial source, Edward II murdered the porter as he escaped from Barclay Castle. Could it be that this beautiful cathedral was built in honor of a dead doorman? In the Middle Ages, when pilgrims headed west out of Gloucester, they soon entered a wild no-man's land as they approached the Welsh border. To the English, the Welsh were a dangerous and barbaric race. Even the name Wales is derived from the Anglo-Saxon word Gwala, meaning foreigner, stranger. But the pilgrims were not alone. In the 13th century, the biggest armies this island had ever seen also marched into Wales, led by Edward I. The routes they took are the only ones shown on this part of the map. First, a road along the north coast, built in 1283 to supply Edward's castles. And second, the route I'm on through South Wales represents the path his armies took to suppress an uprising in 1295. 
Historians believe these routes are shown because the Gough map is based on an earlier map made for Edward I himself. 800 years ago, this was the buffer zone between England and Wales as the English sought to conquer the Welsh. To this day, up and down this border region, peculiar laws and customs survive. There's even one which stipulates that should a Welshman come into the town uninvited, you can shoot him dead with a bow and arrow. Eric Boole uses a bow and arrows identical to those used by Edward I's archers. At the time, arrow technology was being transformed rapidly as arrowheads, or bodkins, competed in a deadly arms race against the chainmail armour of the day. That's the earliest type of armour-piercing arrowhead. It's what's called a short or ward bodkin. And essentially, like all other armour-piercing heads, it's essentially a triangular section. As the armourers got cleverer, they made the male closer linked and they multiple linked the male to try and make the, the gaps between smaller. So the short bodkin essentially turns into the long or needle bodkin, which, as you can see, is going to slide between those links very, very easily. And that head stays in use right up into the early years of plate armour. Eventually, that turns into the final development, the ballista bodkin. And the secret of that head is the fact that it's only really got to pierce a quarter of an inch or so, and you've got a hole that's bigger than the shaft that the whole shaft passes through. You need to have quite some power behind it, though. It, feel, uh, it doesn't feel very sharp. Raw bows one. are essentially very powerful, but it's still quite a fine point, and all the kinetic energy imparted in it by the bow is concentrated at that one point. OK, Alex, if you'd like to pick up the arrow. Put it into the bow, as I showed you. That's right. Uh, is that that's there? It. Good. Clear it okay. Thing. That's on. And right. then, oh, God, it's yeah. really hard. Hard on the wrist as much as on the shoulders. Okay. When you're ready, let it go. Oh, oh well, we can't always hit what we aim. It went a ways. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Oh, ow. Tight that. Oh. And let it go. Oh. Well done. Okay. Oh. <laughs> that was poor. Draw right back as far oh, as you possibly really can. Hard. When oh. you're ready, let it go. Hey! Well done. Yeah, nice shot. I well actually done. hit the target. Absolutely. Well so done. obviously I'm a natural at this, but how much practice would a medieval longbowman have got? A lot of practice. When you were five years old, your father was compelled to buy you a bow and arrows, and you were required to practice every Sunday and feast day. So that by the time you were 15 or 16 years old, you were capable of shooting these big 150-pound-plus war bows. Archers transformed the art of warfare. 5,000 archers launching at least 10 arrows a minute would mean that in a well-coordinated attack, at least a quarter of a million arrows could be launched into the sky within the space of about five minutes. Their arrows would darken the skies, obliterating their enemies before they'd even had a chance to draw their swords. It was medieval shock and awe tactics that eventually saw England become one of the most feared nations in Europe. In the 13th century, England had its eye on Wales. At the time, Wales had a population of little more than 300,000, and much of the country was dense forest. So at the vanguard of Edward I's invading armies were 1,800 woodcutters, 
Their job was to break a trail through the Welsh hinterland. But there was another route into Wales, by water. For traders and merchants, rivers like the Severn became the superhighways of their age. The golf map shows the River Severn, or the Severn Sea as it was known, as a sweeping waterway, pouring into the heart of Britain. Its oversized scale on the map highlights its significance. I've come to Newport to cross the River Usk, a tributary of the Severn. Newport was one of the biggest ports Ships came here from all over Britain, and indeed from across Europe. Evidence of the shipping trade was found here in the muddy banks of the River Usk in 2002. A huge medieval ship. Most ships of the time ended their days either wrecked or taken apart for scrap. So this was an exceptional find. It's been kept in this warehouse where it's undergoing a lengthy conservation treatment. So how old is this ship? When was it made? Well, we don't know, but while we were cleaning it, we found a very interesting clue, which is this thing down here. Sitting in this hole here, Buried in the keel. It's a coin that was minted in France between 1445 and 1456. So this ship can't be any older than 1445? Exactly. So why do you think they embedded this coin in the hull of their ship? It's good luck. I know shipbuilders even now who put coins on the masts when they build a ship. It gives you a sense of how big it would have been. Yes, it was 26 metres in length. That was how much we found on the excavation. Mm. It's actually probably longer, more like 35. Wow. She's really, she's a really big ship. More clues about life on the Newport ship were found buried within it. What we've got are fragments of something called Merida ware, which is pottery which was only made in Portugal on the Iberian Peninsula, which suggests she's she's been working on the continent rather than the, the Severn Estuary for a great deal of her working life. This is one of these classic medieval shoes what with a, a pointed, shoe. pointed toe. Wow. And it was stuffed with moss. The toe was stuffed with moss when we found it. It's been, it's been sewn together. And so it would curl up like that. So it's a real pantomime shoe. It's a 15th century winkle picker, this I always describe yeah. it. But trading by sea was not without risk. Going up and down the Severn Estuary, there are a lot of pirates, Barbary pirates working the Devon coast. So if you went out on a ship, you stood a chance of getting seized. So you just you were careful. This is a, a stone shot, which would have been fired from a, a little cannon. Right, it doesn't feel that heavy. It doesn't feel like it could do a lot of damage. You fired that a mast, you'd bring it down, or it would certainly go through a sail. Other evidence of warfare beside this stone shot is this leather 
archer's wrist bracer, which would have gone against the inside of the, the left wrist like that to protect him when he's firing, getting struck by the string of the bow. Right, yeah. It also shows that the yeah. people on this ship were armed and dangerous. The contents of the hull and the ship's 1,700 timbers are testament to the size of the boat and to the importance of shipping in medieval Britain. Right now, I'm off to a place that the Goth map calls Plaga Dicta Glamorgan, a place called Glamorgan. For medieval pilgrims, it would be a further five-day walk to St. David's. Along the way, they would have found respite in many of the small, unnamed settlements that appear on the Goth map. Here in Cosmiston is a modern recreation of a medieval village. Built right on the foundations of a medieval settlement, this place gives us extraordinary insight into how medieval Welsh peasants would have lived. Today, Cosmiston has been rebuilt to look pretty much like it looked in the 14th century. All these houses are built upon the foundations of the original buildings and give an accurate reflection of the layout of a small Welsh medieval village. This is the kind of house that would have been owned by peasants at the very top of the heap. They would have lived in relative comfort in a place like this, but even so, it's pretty smoky because there's no chimney here. Smoke from the fire simply escapes through a small gap in the thatch up above. Archaeological evidence shows that Cosmiston was integrated not just into the national economy, but into the international economy as well. They found fragments of Saint-Ange earthenware, which comes from the southwest of France, and also coins, which indicate that a cash economy was in operation here, even in a tiny little village like Cosmiston. And one of their loveliest finds, I think, was this tiny coin, which is dated from the reign of Edward I, worn thin from being passed from hand to hand. It's a delicate little thing, but very evocative. From the peace of Cosmiston, I'm off to see something that can be found encircling Wales on the Gough map. Castles. To secure his authority in 1276, Edward I embarked upon the greatest castle-building project Europe had ever seen. Known as the Ring of Iron, his castles surrounded Snowdonia, the seat of Welsh resistance. But I am visiting what is arguably the greatest castle of them all, Caerphilly. This was the ultimate statement of power. Caerphilly revolutionized castle design in Britain. These huge lakes take up about 30 acres of the site and they help to keep potential attackers at bay. This is the largest castle in Wales, 
And not only is it vast, it's also virtually impregnable, as a number of Welsh armies discovered to their cost. Caerphilly was one of the first concentrically designed castles in Britain. Basically, one castle built inside another. And if attackers were lucky enough to get through this gatehouse, they would have a horrible sense of deja vu when they saw that on the far side was the same again. In response to the strength of castles like Caerphilly, siege engines were developed, pitting engineering genius against architectural might. They had names like God's Own Catapult, The War Wolf, and my personal favorite, The Bad Neighbor. Sometimes, in an effort to demoralize their enemies, besiegers would strike some pretty low blows. At one siege in Bohemia, 2,000 cartloads of manure were sent over a castle wall by trebuchet. At another siege in France, a page boy was sent out of a castle with a message, and he was returned to sender via catapult. According to one eyewitness, his friends were much discomfited and greatly astonished by his arrival. Here at Caerphilly is a replica of a small siege engine. So, Paul, what kind of siege machine is this? Well, they were known as uh, mangonels in the Middle Ages. It's a torsion machine, so it uses the power stored in twisted rope to give it its power. And is it the same kind of machine that people would have used in the 14th century? Oh, yes, yes, and, and right the way from the Greek period to up until that point as well. And how far can it fire missiles? Well, ours here does about 150 metres, something like that. And what are they made of? Just stone? They're just stones? Um, stones, generally. The smaller machines, they just, they just find nice round rocks. Once you get bigger, then they actually get stonemasons in to actually chip round balls. Because mm -hmm. they knew all about aerodynamics, and, and they knew if they had nice round stones, they went a lot better than just odd-shaped rocks that they found lying about. Sure. So, Paul, how do you fire this thing? Well, you can't really fire them, I'm afraid, because fire is something that comes in with cannons much later on. So we, we use the word loose you know, set it loose, and that comes from a German word, losen, which means to shoot. So, so can I uh, pull the trigger, as it were? Uh, well, if you shout loose, my, okay. my assistant over there will pull the trigger. OK. <clears throat> loose! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Although larger siege engines devastated other castles, Caerphilly's walls were never breached. It symbolized English dominance over the Welsh. But oddly, Caerphilly does not appear on the Gough map. Caerphilly was built by a local English baron, not Edward I. This omission is further evidence, along with the routes taken by Edward's armies, that the Gough map was made to please a royal patron, and this patron was almost certainly Edward I's grandson, Edward III, who was on the throne when the Gough map was drawn in the 1360s. I'm continuing along the south coast of Wales. The closer I get to St David's, the more the importance of pilgrimage to this region's history becomes clear. 
There was even a Latin rhyme. Roma semel quantum, bistat minavia tantum. Once to Rome is worth twice to St. David's. No wonder they came in their thousands, from kings of England to ordinary men and women, all coming to atone for their sins. Here at Nevern, just a few miles away from St. David's, pilgrims en route there carved from the rock this cross. And you can see that pilgrims to this day seem to pay their respects to it quite literally by sticking little coins into the cracks in the face of the rock. Pilgrims also carved out a niche down here that they could kneel into as they gazed up at it. Walking through the forest and seeing the isolated cross at Nevern, I got a sense of what it might have been like for the pilgrims who had been drawn to this peaceful place to pray. I finally made it to St. David's. This is the most westerly point in Wales, 165 miles from Gloucester. It would have taken medieval pilgrims almost two weeks to make this long and arduous journey. St. David's couldn't be further away from England. But what the pilgrims would have found when they got here might have surprised them because St. David's was one of the most anglicized parts of Wales, and that was just how the English wanted it. But they didn't go about trying to conquer this region using castles and siege machines alone. St. David's was at the center of a struggle for hearts and minds. This battle crystallized around one man, Geraldus Cambrensis, or Gerald of Wales. St. David's was the keystone in the English mission to anglicize Western Wales and usurp the power of the Welsh church. Naturally, they needed a bishop, and Gerald of Wales, brilliant scholar, eminent member of the Welsh church, and the man who had overseen the construction of this cathedral was the obvious candidate. But Gerald was turned down for the job, not once, but twice. Why? Well, he had Welsh blood, and to be bishop here, that wasn't good enough. Your loyalty to the English cause had to be unambiguous. Centuries later, this snub to Gerald still rankled. Here in this modern sculpture, the bishop's mitre is shown not on Gerald's head, but by his feet, unworn. 
Wales was effectively annexed by Edward in 1284. Traditional Welsh regions were turned into English shires and English law superseded Welsh. The English seemed to be in charge. But the golf map tells a very different and revealing story. There's very little information here. The Welsh hinterland is barely mapped at all. Because even by the 1360s, when the golf map was made, much of Wales was still a no-go zone for the English. Far away from the English castles and cathedrals, the dream of an independent Wales still lived on. Exploring the relationship between mystery and knowledge tonight on BBC Four with Professor Robert Bartlett in a brand new series. Inside the Medieval Mind is in an hour after we take another trip to the Himalaya with Michael Palin next. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.